All right, so I had said last night that this is a, a teaching on zeal, and it is, but as I was working on it, it kept morphing, and it, bekept, it kept becoming different things. And so it is a teaching on zeal, but it's also, I think at the end we're going to see that it also outlines a process for spiritual growth and maturity. So I want us to keep both of those things in mind, and of course you can't grow if you don't have zeal. So we'll see how those are put together. And I want to orient us a little bit before I get into this. So... We are the seed of the woman who does battle with the seed of the serpent. Amen? Amen. Right? There's a holy war that's going on. And Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. He ascended into heaven where he kicked Satan out and threw him to the earth. And there's no more place in heaven for the accuser because of Jesus Christ the righteous. Praise God. But Revelation 12:17 tells us, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who keeps the commandments of God and holds to the testimony of Jesus? Us, the church. And so the dragon makes war on the church. Satan is a defeated enemy, but he's still an active enemy with the potential to do a lot of harm. Still a dangerous enemy, even though a defeated enemy. And I often, when I talk about this, I've probably said this dozens of times, but there might be one or two people who haven't heard it. When I think of Satan as a defeated but dangerous enemy, I think of in the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf defeats the Balrog and the bridge breaks and the Balrog plummets into the abyss, but as it's going down, fires up that whip and it grabs Gandalf around the ankles and pulls Gandalf down with him. And that's what's going on. Satan is a defeated enemy that's going down, but trying to take down as many people who hold to the commandments of God and have their faith in Jesus as he can, as he's going down. And so we fight this holy war as the church, and our enemies are not enemies of flesh and blood, but of powers and principalities that infect systems and corrupt people, and we fight demons. And God promised a seed who would crush the head of the serpent, right, in Genesis 3? And that's Jesus. And he gathers an army to battle alongside him. And we are head crushers who will carry on this holy war until the end of the world, when the dragon, who is the serpent, will finally be cast into the lake of fire. We are head crushers. We need to have that in our minds. And to be effective warriors in the Lord's army, we have to be a certain kind of people. And that's why in these men's meetings we've talked about acquiring virtue. We've talked about resisting acedia, which looks at God's good gifts and his perfecting gifts and only sees sadness. So we talk about rejecting acedia, acquiring effortless good of virtue. And to be effective warriors, we need zeal. Okay, We need zeal. And I'm defining zeal as pursuing what God has given us to do with great energy and enthusiasm. Okay? Pursuing what God has given us to do with great energy and enthusiasm. Zeal in battle is not an option. You don't want to go to battle with people who are just kind of lackluster about it. You want people who are zealous, who are eager for the fray who want to get in there and do the fighting. Now, I could go through all the passages in Scripture that talk about zeal. There are a lot. We could go through those methodically. But I'm just going to focus on one passage today, 
And that is in Numbers chapter 6, 1 through 21, which talks about the Nazarite vow. How many have, how many are totally unfamiliar with the Nazarite vow? Okay. Um, maybe you've come across it when we've done the St. James Reader and just kind of like, oh, that's interesting and, you know, and moved on. I want to dig into it a little bit more. And when I think about obs- somewhat obscure passages like this, I do always sometimes wonder, like, okay, would, would time be better spent, you know, going through the Sermon on the Mount or going through Romans or something like that? You know, should we stay out of kind of these obscure corners of Scripture? And then I remember Proverbs 25.2, which says, I'm sorry, yeah, 25.2, which says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search them out. We are being made into kings who will rule alongside Christ. We are being formed into kingship. And so it is our glory to search out the scriptures, to go into those nooks and crannies of scripture and see what God has put in there. Because God's put a lot in the Bible, and not all of it is readily observable on the surface. And so it's the glory of kings, it's our glory to go in and to search those things out and to find them. And so we're going to do that this morning in number six. So go ahead and turn there. If you, have, if you brought a Bible with you, or if you have it on your phone, go ahead and turn to Numbers chapter six, because we're going to be in there pretty much the whole time. I'm going to start with 1 to 4. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Okay, so a couple of things here. A Nazarite means one who is separated. So one who takes the vow, separates himself to be a Nazarite means one who is separated. And it's being set apart for a special purpose. And we don't know exactly why specifically people made Nazarite vows. Israel was getting ready for the conquest. They were getting ready to go into the promised land. So it might have been to set themselves apart as warriors. But women could also take this too. So it might have just been wanting to be set apart for God's use. However, God wishes to use the person to grow closer to God, to know God better. And uh, one commentator says, you make yourself divine property when you take a Nazarite vow. And it indicates great zeal for God. You don't make one of these vows if you don't have great zeal for God. If you don't want to energetically and enthusiastically pursue his purposes, you make yourself divine property. And so think about in the tabernacle, we've talked about some of the furnishings in the tabernacle. There were utensils in the tabernacle And those things were holy to the Lord. They belonged in the tabernacle for special use. These things shouldn't just be turning up in your home being used for dinner, these utensils. They had a specific purpose. They were holy to the Lord, and they belonged in the tabernacle. And so you make yourself divine property. You take a Nazarite vow. You're like those utensils. You're not your own anymore. 
You are setting yourself apart for God's use, however God sees fit to use you. And it says that this is a special vow in the text. Um, I think that's uh, doing it a bit light. It's really an exceptional vow. It is a, it's a wondrous thing. It's an extraordinary vow. It's meant to shown to be that it is something that is just beyond a, a normal vow that somebody might make. It rearranges and utterly changes the person's life who takes this vow. It is not for the faint of heart. And that's why it's an example of great zeal. And somebody who takes the vow has to separate himself from wine or strong drink, anything having to do with a grape. And this is not, don't read into it that the Bible is saying that alcohol is bad, and so you have to abstain from wine for that reason. Um, There are, one one of the reasons why this might have been is that drunkenness can be mistaken for zeal. Somebody who's acting in drunkenness could be mistaken for Uh, Or let me put it the other way around. Somebody who's acting zealously and energetically could be mistaken for drunkenness. Um, You think about on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell and they're speaking in tongues, what do the the detractors say? Well, they're just new wine. They're they're drunk. So that that could be one reason why wine is, is, and anything from the grape. It's not just wine, but it's anything from the grape. And this would have been hard. It's probably hard for us to think about. This would have been very challenging for somebody taking the vow. Wine was very common in Israelite culture, and you would have been left out of a lot. There are a lot of things that you could not participate in if you can't have anything from the grape. You would also have to be extremely meticulous in your diet to make sure that you don't consume anything that has come from the grape. So not just wine, but anything. It can't have grapes in it. And so you would have to be extremely meticulous. Think of the worst peanut allergy in the world. You would have to be just as careful as that. When I was a camp counselor, we had a, I had a camper in my cabin for a week who was deathly allergic to bug spray. <laughs> deathly allergic to bug spray. And his parents sent him to camp. <laughs> and all he had all he had for protection was this stuff called Skintastic which the mosquitoes thought was candy and I mean, they couldn't wait to see him come out at night but he wanted to go to his camp and his parents wanted to come to camp and so to accommodate we had to be extremely careful where we sprayed any kind of bug spray and so we had to make sure we weren't spraying it anywhere where he was we had to make sure when we were gathered outside that he wasn't too close to anybody wearing bug spray because his throat could close up. And so we just, we had to be extremely careful. I don't know if he had a good time that week, but we did the best that we could. And so you have to be extremely meticulous to make sure that you don't consume anything from grapes. Okay, Numbers uh, 6-5, the next prohibition. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow long. Okay, so hair in the scriptures is associated with vitality, with vigor and strength. So we immediately think of who when we think of hair and strength? Samson. We immediately think of Samson, who was a Nazarite, 
from birth. It wasn't a choice that he made, though. It was something that was put upon him. We also might think of Absalom. Absalom's hair infers virility and military might. His hair is also his undoing in the end when his hair gets tangled in the tree. Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. So there are other places in the scripture that talks about hair and, and associates it with glory. The gray hair of an old man is called a crown. It's a symbol of nobility and of wisdom. And Nazarite is related to the Hebrew word Nazir. And that's the same word that's used for a crown that's worn by a king. So Nazarite is associated to the same word that's, uh, that means crown on the head of a king. And the high priest, Israel's high priest, also wears a crown. So we've recently been in, in the latter chapters of Exodus. In Exodus 28, it talks about something that the high priest is supposed to wear. It says, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And in chapter 29, it explicitly refers to this that Aaron wears as a crown. Okay, so think of a crown that a king wears, the crown that the high priest wears, A Nazarite has his own crown, which is his hair. And that is why he is not to cut his hair, because his hair grows as he grows in glory. So the long hair of a Nazarite is his crown. And the longer that he's a Nazarite, the more glory that he's going to have, the the more hair that he's going to have. So kings show their authority by their crown. The high priest shows that he's holy to the Lord through his crown. And for the Nazarite, his unshaven head is a similar symbol. It's his crown. Does that make sense? Okay, that's why he can't cut it. And that should make us ask, you know, how long were these vows? There's nothing in the stipulations here as far as how long a vow had to be. But if you think that the marker of the vow on the outside is long hair, we would think it's going to be a rather substantial vow because 30 days... You know, you just look like you just need a little bit of a haircut. But I think we're talking about something that's much more substantial, a much more visible sign of dedication and devotion to the Lord. A lot of hair growing, that's a long period of time. And so long hair, it's a visual reminder of a person who is totally given to the service of God. And they become an example or a model of holiness for the rest of the community. When they go by and they have their long hair, people say, yeah, that's, a, that's an Ezra. That's somebody who has set himself apart in devotion to the Lord for the Lord's use. Um, along the lines of this with hair, I don't, I don't have time to get into it this morning, unfortunately, but sometime go back and take a look at 2 Kings chapter 2. It's right after Elijah has been taken up in the whirlwind. And it's the part where Elisha... Uh, is accosted by some youths who say, go on up, you bald head. And he calls down a curse and two she-bears come out and kill 42 of the lads. And we read that and we're like, geez, Elisha? Is that really necessary, you know, to call down a curse? And, you know, what are you thinking? Well, one of the things we should think is, 
why was Elijah? Why was Elisha bald? And uh, one thing that we'll get into in the next one of the next sections. I probably should have saved this for later. But when somebody dies next to you suddenly, you have to start over. You have to shave your head and you have to start over. And Elijah has just been taken up from Elisha. And I think it's inferred that maybe Elisha had been a Nazarite and he had shaved his head. And so the youths are, are possibly making fun or they're alluding to the fact that Elijah has been taken away from him. Okay, verse 6. This is the third prohibition. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself, oh, sorry. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So if a normal Israelite touched a dead body, how long would they be unclean? Anybody know? Seven days. Okay, seven days. You're unclean, but then you come back. That's in Numbers 19. They'd have to go outside the camp and cleanse themselves on the third day and on the seventh day. And if they don't do that, then they're cut off from the community. Priests, were priests supposed to go near a dead body? They were not. Okay, priests were not supposed to go near a dead body unless it was the body of a very close relative. If it was a father or a mother, brother or sister, in that case, they could make themselves unclean. That's in Leviticus 21. So for priests, there was an exception for close family members. But the high priest could not make himself unclean even for the death of a mother, father, brother, or sister. That's also in Leviticus 21. The high priest could not do that. Now, the Nazarite is not a priest and is not the high priest, but he's held to the same standards as the high priest. He is set apart and holy to the Lord, just like the high priest is. And so he can't even mourn a father or mother or brother or sister. And I think this sheds light in an interesting way on something that Jesus says. This is in Matthew 8. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What's Jesus maybe saying? I want devotion from you like the devotion of a Nazarite. As disciples of Jesus, we are, in a sense, Nazarites. Maybe not with the same kinds of restrictions, but we have been ransomed by his blood. We are his followers, and he calls us to the same level of devotion as a Nazarite. Let the dead bury their dead. Pick it up at verse 9. This is what I alluded to earlier. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb and a year old, sorry, a male lamb, a year old for a guilt offering. 
but the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. So if somebody dies suddenly next to you, you have to start all over again. Whatever length that you had pledged to be set apart starts back over from day one. And we, I think we balk at this. We're like, that seems so unfair. I mean, that somebody dies suddenly next to you. One, how often does that happen? But, you know, somebody dies next to you, it would not seem, you know, we think in terms of fault. We would think, well, that's not your fault. Why would you have to start over? And plus, you also think you would also probably be very cautious. Like if I'm talking to Adam and he just starts not looking so good, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll see you later. I'm going to call your friends and your wife and they'll, they'll have to take care of you. I think this is a, a good reminder to us that holiness is not according to our standards. Holiness is not according to our standards. This is from a, a scholar named Dennis Olson. I think this is a great quote. I'll read it twice. Our modern inability to appreciate or even understand how purity systems work is a barometer of how far away we are as a culture and society from having a notion of the reality of a holy God as a truly defining center of our lives and communities. We'll read it again. Our modern inability to appreciate or even understand how purity systems work is a barometer of how far away we are as a culture and society from having a notion of the reality of a holy God as a truly defining center of our lives and communities. We forget what it means to live with a holy God. And so you don't touch a dead body not because it's gross. We would think, well, it's just gross to touch a corpse. That's not why you don't touch a holy... uh, That's not why you don't touch a dead body. You don't touch a dead body because a holy God dwells among you, dwells among the people. That's why you don't touch a dead body. It's not you don't eat certain kinds of animals because they're disgusting. You don't eat those because there's a holy God dwelling in the midst of the community. Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God dwells with us. How seriously do we take purity and holiness? Should be a question for us to consider. How seriously do we take purity and holiness? A Nazarite takes purity and holiness so seriously that he's held to the same standard as the high priest. And if some, someone dies suddenly next to him, he starts over. There is no quitting once you have begun your vow. Once you're in, you're in. And again, that's why Jesus says, count the cost. When you're thinking about becoming my disciple, count the cost. Because once you say you're in, once you've been baptized and you say you're in, you're in. And you may think that you're out, but you're in. I consider you in. There is no quitting. Even if you have to start over through repentance, and the Nazarite has to start over if he comes in contact with a dead body. Holiness is not according to our standards. Amen? Amen. This is the last big chunk. This is 13 to 20. Hang with it. Slightly tedious. And this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord 
one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled and one unleavened loaf out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. So how many different offerings are listed there? There's a burnt offering, which is also called an ascension offering. There's a sin offering. There's a peace offering. There's a grain offering. And there's a drink offering. And then something else is offered as a wave offering later on. That is a lot for one person to offer. It costs a lot to end your vow as a Nazarite. I don't know what the calculation is as far as equivalency of how much it would cost, but it is very substantial. Everything that I looked at in the commentaries is that this would have cost somebody significantly to end their vow. All these different kinds of animals, all these things that you bring. And again, you don't enter into this lightly. You don't make a Nazarite vow lightly because it's very expensive to end. It's somebody who demonstrates great zeal who does this. Also, you shave your head and you burn the hair in the fire. All the glory that you accumulated during the time of your vow, your crown, the crown that's accumulated during the time of your vow gets reduced to ashes. It just burns up. Your long hair marked you out as a Nazarite. You were, a, you were someone who had made an exceptional vow. You were a model of holiness and purity in the community. And now that's all gone and it's into the fire. And so in a sense, with a shaved head, you're starting all over again. And the question is, will that person maintain the same level of zeal as they did when they were in the time of the vow? Now that they have come to the end, will they maintain that same level of zeal or will they just start to backslide to where they were before? And then numbers, uh, verse 21, this wraps it up. This is the law of the Nazarite. But if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford, in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. So if somebody wants to, they can go even above and beyond the vow of a Nazarite and make it even more restrictive if they wanted to. There's one commentator who refers to this Nazarite vow as rugged discipleship. And we think of it as rugged discipleship because it's very intense. But again, if you think about Jesus's words, we're all Nazarites. We're all called to that same complete and utter devotion. So I think it's not just 
It's not rugged discipleship. It is discipleship. It is what it means to follow Jesus. So a couple of considerations that I want us to make, considerations, applications. I think the Nazarite vow points to a process for growth and maturity. Growing into maturity. I think this, this is a process here. And I have four points related to this as it relates to the whole duration of the vow. And the first one is that we have to choose to grow into maturity. Seems obvious, but it's true. We have to choose to grow into maturity. Now, we think of some of the Nazarites like Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist. They were Nazarites, but their Nazariteship was imposed upon them from birth or before birth. The idea here in number six is that this vow is freely made. This is an exceptional vow that somebody makes out of their own zeal, out of their own desire to be set apart for God's use. We choose to grow. We have to choose paths toward maturity. They can't be imposed upon us. We can't be forced to grow. And you probably have an area where you know that you need to mature. I know that I have areas where I need to mature. You don't take a Nazarite vow unless you really want it. And you have to really want to choose pathways to maturity. You really have to want to choose growth. And so the question is, how bad do you want it? Do you want it just a little? Or do you want it really badly? And somebody who took this kind of vow wanted something very badly. You don't take it otherwise. <clears throat> There's a, a pastor a long time ago um, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. <clears throat> Anybody ever heard of Rob Bell? Anybody know who Rob Bell is? Uh, he was a, just a brilliant Bible teacher until he went kind of apostate and off the rails. But he was a brilliant Bible teacher before then. And I heard a teaching that he gave one time on the Nazarite vow. And as he was giving the teaching, there was a man on stage with long hair getting his head shaved on the stage the whole time Rob Bell is talking about this passage. And I, I could only hear the audio but could hear the clippers. You know, And I imagined to be there and to see that would have been a very powerful picture of devotion to God. I've considered, I've considered doing this myself, and I, I don't, my goal in all this is not at the end you're all going to run home and shave your heads and not drink grape juice or anything anymore. That's not the goal. It's for us to increase in zeal and holiness. But I have considered doing this before myself. There, were, there was a time where just several areas of my life I was very stuck, there was no movement, I was very frustrated. And felt like I just needed to do something pretty radical. And had, had read number six, and I was like, maybe I, maybe I should just take a Nazarite vow. You know? And uh, I talked about it with some friends and uh, told Eric Robichaud, who's, who's a dear guy and loves the Old Testament. I told him, and he was like, he was like I love you, Kelly Hahn. <laughs> he so wanted me to do it. I didn't do it, though. I decided to do some other things instead. But you have to be zealous for it. You have to be zealous for growth. You have to want it pretty badly. We have to choose it. Number two, we have to have constraints. If we're going to grow, if we're going to grow toward maturity, we have to have constraints. So remember the talk on temperance last summer and how 
The riverbanks channel the river and allow it to have force. The river has force because there are riverbanks there that channel the water. If the riverbanks are gone, it just dissipates and it loses all of its strength and it just, it just spreads everywhere. And so those constraints of the riverbank give it force. You can't choose to move toward maturity and be open to, and also be open to every possible other thing in your life. There are some things that you have to be able to give up in order to go up. A Nazarite had rigorous constraints. You know, and they may not seem that rigorous to us living in our day. You might think, well, yeah, I can do without wine. I can do without grape juice. I can do without grapes. Don't really want to touch a corpse. (laughs) And I can let my hair grow long. You know, we, we might think, yeah, that's not... But you're also a model of holiness and purity. Everybody knows who you are. And so, an Ezra had rigorous constraints. And once you're in, you're in. There's no going back. And so, what constraints do you need to impose that will allow growth to occur? What kind of constraints do you need to impose in your life so that you can go up to that next level of maturity. We don't talk about Lent a whole lot, but I'm going to talk about Lent right now because it's in two and a half weeks. February 22nd is Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of Lent. And it's a time where common custom is, in observing Lent, it's, it's common custom to give something up. Something that's good, not something that's sinful, but something that's good to part with it for a time in order to seek God and do without that thing. And you do it for the 46 days before Easter. And it's not giving something up because we're morose and we're abasing ourselves and flagellating ourselves before God. That's not it. That's not the point. It's because if we're going to mature, we have to be able to say no to ourselves. If we are going to be kings who reign with Christ, who judge angels we have to be able to say no to ourselves. I am not a healthy eater. If you saw my plate this morning, you would know that that's true. I'm not a healthy eater. I I tend to eat what's available, what's convenient, what tastes good. If I'm going to eat healthy, it is a conscious decision and a lot of willpower. Even so, I have never had a Baconator from Wendy's in my whole life. I've never had a Baconator. Even though I've eaten plenty of other unhealthy things. And I think it was just, you know, I saw it when it came out. It is, it is a half pound of meat, six strips of bacon and cheese. It's a thousand calories. And when it came out, I remember thinking... I, I can never have one of those. Because if I, if I have a Baconator, I've pretty much just given up. <laughs> pretty much anything goes if I have one of those. And so I've always, even though I've not always made good, conscious, healthy eating decisions, I've never had a Baconator. And as you grow in maturity, there are things, there are options And I'm not talking about sin, although at the early levels, it's shedding sin. But then, as you grow in maturity, it's shedding things that are not sin. But things that still just don't really have a place anymore, if you're wanting to grow in maturity. Maybe it's 
maybe you're a big sports fan and you're used to watching a lot of sports and you just come to a place where you're like, you know, if I'm going to get here, I can't really be the guy who knows a lot about sports and watches a lot of sports. Or I, I need to, to not be involved in gaming anymore because it just takes up a lot of time and it takes up a lot of headspace. And I just need to, it's no longer a viable option because I can't get to where I want to go if I stay here. So what kind of constraints do you need to impose that will allow growth to occur? Number three, maturity does not come cheaply. Maturity does not come cheaply. Becoming a Nazarite, it not only requires an entire change of life, but again, think of all those offerings when it's time to end the vow. It's a significant investment. It costs a lot. And to grow in maturity, it's not just giving things up, but it's also giving ourselves to things. It's giving ourselves in relationship. It's giving ourselves and making commitments to other people committing to the church to where life in the church as we see that we want it to be means that other things are really no longer on the table and so it's costly maturity doesn't come cheaply and then number four which I think might be my favorite of these we reach a level of maturity and we start over from there We reach a level of maturity, and we start over from there. At the end of the vow, the Nazarite takes his crown, all the glory that's accumulated in his hair, and he burns it up. And it's over, and he can drink wine again. But the finish line is just a new starting line. Now, he might not take another vow, but that finish line where he ended up is just another starting line. It's a new place to bear more fruit. And I think this, uh, this made me think of John 15, 1 to 2. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So all the glory that's accumulated during the vow is pruned back. It's burned up so that more fruit can grow. As the Nazarite comes to this level of maturity, now he's ready for more fruit to grow. But it's a continual pruning process. When you fulfill the Nazarite vow, you come to a different place of maturity that you were at when you started. We go from strength to strength. Psalm 84, 5 through 7. If you could flip over there real quick. We're, we're, We're done in numbers. If you can flip over to Psalm 84, it might be helpful. Psalm 84, 5 through 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. How do you go from strength to strength? By going through the valley of Baca. It's the valley of weeping. It's an arid and a dry place where nothing grows. And going from strength to strength means going in those places and making it a place of springs. Bringing life to it. 
going into the dark and dead and dying places and bringing life to it. That's how we go from strength to strength. That's bearing fruit. And we do that by being zealous for it, by being energetic and enthusiastic about the purposes of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. One degree of glory to another. We're moving up in maturity and starting over each time. It's God's intention for us to go from strength to strength, from glory to glory, crowns of glory to shaved heads and back again. Amen? I'm near the close. I want to read Titus 2, 11-14, which I think is a great summary of everything that I've said about zeal. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That last part, to purify for himself. We are the army that he's gathered around him to battle the seed of the serpent for his own possession who are zealous for good works, giving ourselves passionately to God's purposes. We are meant to be head crushers. And to be head crushers in the Lord's army, we have to be a certain kind of people. We must be zealous, pursuing what God's given us to do with great energy and enthusiasm. Zeal in battle is not an option. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.